0: I'm going to introduce what we're discussing tonight. We're going to go down the same road that we uh, have been going down, but I want to I want to introduce tonight our thoughts about uh, the attributes of God by just reminding you of of why what this does for us. All right, I read a lot. Not as much, maybe. I mean, if you're thinking like 100 pages a day, I'm not that fast a reader. But I do read. I do read uh, quite a bit, and I read a lot of different things every day. The things that I read are as much as I would like to read. Uh, I was reading a little bit of uh, Louis L'Amour. I'd not, I was reading about Louis L'Amour. I was not reading his bo- I had several of his books. Uh, anybody know who Louis L'Amour is? He was a Western writer, Western uh, fiction writer, and uh, just just awesome. And I could, I could get so caught up in reading his books. Uh, but I do not, I do not allow myself that, uh, that luxury. I save time and just, you know, watch an episode of Gunsmoke and that, that, uh, that, that's my, that's my Western fix and I'm all set, but, but no, uh, I would, I could really get into, I could read uh, revolutionary history constantly and, and enjoy it uh, but I don't. I limit all that, and most of my reading—I'm talking about 95% of my reading outside of the Bible—and I do not let anything compete with my the, the, the time that I put into Bible reading. But my my Bible reading outside—I'm oh, sorry, my reading outside of the Bible, 95% is reading men of God from the last 2,000 years and what they wrote about God. My standard for whether or not I will read a a man is the, my number one standard is did they know God and I have I tell you you don't I can read somebody that I have no idea who they are and you don't have to read very long to perceive whether or not this person knew God. You know, I can go online and and type in the person's name and and bio, and come up and and read. Oh, okay, this this guy, uh, you know, this guy was, for example, boy, I, don't, I hope I don't sound like a heretic here, you know, but this guy was a you know a Catholic monk, and I can go. Uh, oh well, I mean, he, you know, he he couldn't have possibly known God, but then you pick up the book, and you go, wow. This dude was connected to God. And then you can pick up another one and look at his bio online. And it says, everything it's supposed to say right down the line. And you go, oh, man, this guy. And then you read his writings and you go, wow, this man has a foul attitude. This man is bitter at everybody. And uh, you, just don't, you just don't see the spirit of Christ. And uh, I want people that I read the book. And now, by the way, if someone is caught up in mysticism or heresy at some point, then it's all I, I can sense that pretty quickly, and you can tell. But but uh, so and, and if if you if you don't know what you believe, I have to tell you, you got to be very careful about what you read because it is easy to get sucked in by people who believe and embrace false doctrine. All that to say that. The greatest thing that reading these writers does for me is help me to know my God better. I want to know God better. Now listen, as it pertains to our church, here's let me tell you what I almost did tonight for the work of the ministry segment that I've been doing for the last month or, or so. Um, I almost showed you a video, and I may do this next week. It's, it's a video, and it's, it's a parody of, of, a, of the TV show house hunters and uh, what it is it's this young millennial couple that is uh, looking for a church the ironic thing is that it is it is uh, done by a, a comedian a Christian <laughs> this title blows my mind. a Christian comedian who I gotta fix this or I'm gonna lose it there we go um a Christian comedian who grew up, his, his, his dad is a pastor, still is, and grew up pretty much in our kind of church, and now he's grown up and he's going to, you know, one of the, these uh, pop culture kind of churches. But here's the funny thing. It is making fun of people who search for churches on any other basis, but then, you know, oh, yeah, they believe the Bible. They love the Lord. They're serving the Lord it's they they're it's 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 a parody so they're you know they're they're wanting to know uh, about the technology and they're wanting to know and and uh, they take them to i think it's cross point first baptist church or something and and uh, they go first baptist church who names a church that anymore you know that kind of thing and uh, i didn't make it sound very funny but i got to tell you it's 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 very it's funny and it's pathetic at the same time and the reason that i almost showed it to you and still might is because I want you to understand that that is real. It is going on. It's very popular. But wait, time out. That philosophy of looking at a church based upon whether or not it's, it's uh, and I know this is isn't is an old man word, but uh, based upon whether it's cool, based upon whether they're, they're chill, I guess I'm going a little younger there, whether, whether they're chill, you know, and, and one of the jokes they make is, you know, hey, you know, the pastor, he dresses his age, but he has started untucking his shirts, you know, things like that, just silly, stupid things. And uh, but, but time out. I'm, I'm getting somewhere I haven't gotten there yet. You know who looks at churches that way and hunts for a church that way? Second and third generation spoiled brat Christian kids. That's the truth. Lost people do not look for a church that way. Oh, let's face it. Lost people don't look for a church. And so what has happened with with this whole pop culture church movement is we have tried to cater to the appetites of young adult couples who grew up in church, they know right from wrong, and they have rejected their parents' New Testament, Bible, discipleship kind of Christianity, and they want a Christianity that doesn't demand so much of them, doesn't make them so radical in the eyes of their lost friends. And here's my whole point of bringing that up. We cannot cave to that weak Our job is to have a New Testament Bible-believing church. And so when I stand up and I, I, this morning, you know, I preached on on, uh, the Word of God changing you. Well, I'm sure, you know, that a a, um, second-generation, by the way, I'm a third-generation Christian, so I'm uh, I'm picking on myself, but I'm, I'm picking on my friends that I grew up with that they've gone that other route. And, of course, they're out of church and away from God now. And their, their, their families are in sad shape. But, of course, that's got nothing to do with, you know, with, with the kind of Christianity they're living. But, uh, wow, that was, a, that was a rabbit trail off a rabbit trail. Let's see if I can find my way back. Um, so this morning I preach on how to have your, your life changed by the word of God. And one of those millennial types, a second, third generation, spoiled brat, Christian kids might say, that's not relevant. And I don't care if they think it's relevant. Because I want to tell you, it's relevant. And tonight, here's I'm getting back to our subject tonight. Learning the attributes of God is relevant to a Christian who's serious about God. So let me summarize everything I've said in the last last little roaming eight minutes, all right? If you're serious about God, you're going to like the subject matter. If you're not, well, man, I can lower everything to a a fluffy puppies and pancakes level, and that's not going to help anyway. It's not going to help you if you're not serious about God, and it's not going to help the people here that are serious about God. What you may not know is there are people in this room, a lot of them, who really are serious about God. So when, when, when you hear me preach on, on, and I didn't get any criticism I know this afternoon. I'm not responding to anything. I just, man, I see what's going on out there, and I go, man, I don't want to live there. I want to live close to Christ. And uh, I, I, want, I, want to, I want the messages that, that, that you hear here to strengthen your faith and make you more like Christ and encourage you and make you a better disciple of Jesus Christ. So let's do what we've done for a number of weeks now. Let's review some of what we've learned. Number one, Christian doctrine is the foundational teachings upon which all of Christianity is built as given to us in the bible now if you're a grammarian you may have problems there with the 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 is and teachings in the same sentence that the number doesn't match and i have to tell you i have wrestled over that that's my statement right there and i have wrestled over but i have come to the conclusion that is it it, it is grammatically correct and if there's one person in here that cares about that, I'm just letting you know it grates at me when I hear it. But I think it's right. So anyway, and the rest of you go, maybe where, where's he dogging, man? <laughs> anyway, number two, three reasons why we should be students of Bible doctrine. What was that question, by the way? I'm I'm, I'm, I'm rambling right now. Uh, what was that? There was a question several years ago, and we threw it around. On a I think a youth activity, and if you don't care about grammar you're, you' you would be like, I don't even care what is he talking about? I shouldn't have brought it up because I can't remember something about the baby, the babies and should babies should never be left alone and what was the question? yeah aren't you glad you don't ride in a asset car <laughs> <laughs> And uh, one of my kids, they were st- weren't they still in Christian school at the time, took it to the teacher, and the teacher said, that I was wrong. We yanked him right out of that school. <laughs> but anyway, I still think I was right. But anyhow, so three reasons why we should be students of Bible doctrine. A, Bible doctrine changes your life. We read that in Romans 6.17. Bible doctrine keeps you and the people you love on the right path. We read that in 1 Timothy 4.16. Bible doctrine nourishes you, 1 Timothy 4, 6. All right, number three, theology is the study of God. So when you hear somebody talk about, you know, and a lot of times we can use theology in, in a negative light, sort of like the word holiness. Well, you know, into theology. All right, well, okay, whatever the point the preacher's making when you hear that, I may say that sometime in some context where it makes sense. But just understand, theology is a good word, and it means the study of God. What should a Christian enjoy more in this whole world than a study of God? Theology is the study of God. Number four, the Bible is the sole authority for every Christian's study of God. Now listen, you may hear that and go, well, Pastor, that's thats I mean, that's elementary. But I tell you, there's a lot of Christianity out there that would not agree with that. Some say that the, the church plus the Bible are the, the, the uh, foundation for our doctrine. Some say that human reasoning plus the Bible. You put the two together and you come to a destination of this is what doctrine should be. Some say that it's bible doctrine, I'm sorry, the bible plus experience or a revelation. Can I give you an example of this? This 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 breaks my heart. This is a man he never he never was an independent baptist, but he is somebody that that our church has sort of a distant connection to. He's never been here, he never will be here, but but I could I could lay out a connection for how this man has Done things that we are familiar with. I don't. I don't want to hurt his name, so I might tell you in private, but I wouldn't say it in public. But this man uh, who ha- has always believed in visions, as a now I believe in visions in the sense that. God can give you a vision of what he wants you to do and i believe it can be from God you got to be careful you got to seek him out you got to you know spend time in prayer and fasting but i think God can boom, wow show you some some uh some some things and and uh i don't mean that you'll physically see them but but listen there are things that i can i can visualize in my mind in my heart and i believe God put them there that's not what this guy believed in this guy believed that God can appear to you in the night and reveal doctrine to you. Now, that's dangerous. And one night, God appeared to this man. This was in a late, I'm going to say maybe 2008, 9, 10, around there, my, to the best of my knowledge. God appeared to him, he says, in a vision one night and said, you know, you've been preaching all these years that Jesus is God. He's not God. And there's videos of YouTube of this man who is, if I told you some of the, I hate to do it because I don't want to hurt his his name and his family name, but if I told you some of the things that, that he has done that we're familiar with, you'd say, oh, wow. And he's speaking, at a pastor's conference with his Bible and trying to prove from the Bible, now, hey, fellas, hey, I'm just like you, and uh, but I want to show you. And he's trying to prove to them from the Bible that his vision is correct. That Jesus is a tool of God, but he's not God. Oh, my goodness. Now, how did he get there? How did, how did this man who has tremendous tre- credentials in american churches get to that place because he believed that bible doctrine comes from the bible plus revelations if he didn't believe that he would never have gotten there if i had a had a dream tonight that said that where where god spoke to me and said jesus is not god I'd get out of bed and get on my knees and say, oh God, forgive me. I don't know what got in my heart that I would even think such a thought. I'd get up the next morning and I'd tell my wife, I am sorry that I, I had the most horrible dream last night. This is horrible. And I would probably spend more time in my Bible tomorrow and in prayer than I usually do to get that out of my, where did that come from? Why? Because I don't put any stock in Revelations as a source of doctrine. So we we believe and teach and practice that the Bible is the sole authority for every Christian's study of God. Number five, systematic theology is a method of studying God by organizing all of the doctrines of the Bible into basic categories. Now to the best of my knowledge and I'm no expert on this but to the best of my knowledge the first person to extensively do this excuse me was uh, was Augustine one of the most prominent men to do this in the last 600 years was John Calvin and uh, but there have been many others I have never read Calvin's theology and have no intention of doing it but uh, there, there are many other, other uh, men who have written. So what they've done is taken the teachings of the Bible and put them into categories. And then you study it, Categorically, So we could, we, and, and categorically has a, a little bit different meaning also, but we could also call it accurately, I guess, categorical theology. Theology by category. Instead, it's called systematic theology. Okay, I, I, I really feel like my, my shoes are starting to get bogged down a little bit. So let's let's move on here. And we've started by talking about, uh, first of all, the existence of God, and then we went to the attributes of God. We said the attributes of God are divided into two categories, non-transferable attributes. Those are attributes of God that can never be imitated or passed along in any degree to his, his creatures. The other category is transferable attributes. And we'll get to those real soon. In fact, I think we have one more Sunday night on the non-transferable attributes of God. We're getting close to the end of that. But um, the the transferable, like love, God is love. Well, we can learn how to love, okay? But we can't learn how to be omnipresent. So there's the difference, all right? Omnipresent is a non-transferable. Love is a transferable, all right? So We have reviewed up to the point of now me just reminding you of the non-transferable attributes that we have talked about. Attributes that cannot be shared by God's creation. God is a spirit. God is invisible. God is one. God is perfect. God is eternal. God is a trinity. God is self-existent. God is infinite. God is omnipotent. God is omniscient. God is omnipresent. That brings us current, and we're going to talk about two attributes of God tonight. Next, letter L, or number, I believe, letter L is number 12. God is immutable. What does that mean? It means God does not change. Immutable. Oh, listen, as you ponder this and you think about your God, the God that you love and the God who loves you, this is so much bigger than we can comprehend. And, and as I explain this, maybe you'll see just a little bit of it, but do you understand that everything and everybody changes except God? There is no other element of this universe that never changes except God. And not only does does he not change. He cannot change. Let's talk about first of all the definition. Here's Webster's 1829 dictionary of immutable. Invariable, unalterable, not capable or susceptible of change. And here's what the immutability of God means. God is absolutely unchanging and unchangeable. In his character, his essence, his attributes, his principles, and his purpose. The Bible confirms that God does not and cannot change. And God's other attributes demand that God does not and cannot change. Now, let me stop and say this. Don't ever use this as an argument for why you shouldn't pray. People have done that. Because it doesn't this does not mean that God, in the performance of His purposes in this world, can't change things for you. But when He changes something for you, He will not do so by changing His purposes. His purposes do not change. But he can make things change for you. It's not a violation of his character, his person, or his purposes. Not what whatsoever. Okay, let's give you some verses that back this up or that that state this. Proverbs nineteen twenty one: There are many devices in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the counsel of the Lord that shall stand. Malachi chapter three verse six: I am the Lord. I change not. Hebrews 13, verse number 8. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. James 1, 17, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Now, I want you to listen very carefully. I'm going to read two very long passages. Well, not super long. Actually, three. Three passages that are longer than normal from men of God who wrote on this topic of immutability. Two of them are men that I told you that I've been studying after in order to prepare for this. And one of them is another source. that I have a book by A.W. Tozer on the character of God or the attributes of God. And so I've included an excerpt from him, and and I'm going to read it slowly, and I want you to let it soak in because this is just brilliant teaching about God. Listen carefully. This is J.M. Pendleton first. Creatures change. Everything changes. But God changes not. He is and must be eternally the same, for he is infinitely perfect, and infinite perfection precludes change. There can be no change which is, does not imply imperfection. It is needless to say that imperfection is implied in a change for the worse, for such a change would indicate imperfection before and great imperfection after its occurrence. So he said, a change for the worse, just the fact that you change, you are imperfect, and then if you change for the worse, you're even more imperfect after the change. Then he says, it is also true that a change for the better denotes previous imperfection, for such a change is toward imperfection. So if you change become perfect, you weren't perfect before. God's perfect, so he can't change towards perfection. There can be no change in the number of God's natural attributes, and there can be no increase in their capacity and power. It would be absurd to suppose that God can be more self-existent, more eternal, more omnipotent than he is. J.M. Pendleton on the institutability of God. Stephen Charnock. God is unalterably fixed in his being so that not a particle of it can be lost from it. Not a mite added to it. Nothing can be lost from the character of God. Nothing can be added to the character of God. That's the God that you're going to pray to tonight. That's the God that you pray to tomorrow. Nothing can be added to who who he is. Nothing can be taken away from who he is. He goes on. If a man were to continue in being as long as Methuselah, 969 years, yet there is not a day nor an hour wherein there is not some alteration in his substance. But in God, there can be no alteration by the accession of anything to make his substance greater or better, or by diminution to make it less or worse. Now here's A.W. Tozer. For a moral being to change, it would be necessary for that change to be in one of three directions. He must go from better to worse, or from worse to better, or granted that the the moral quality remains stable, he must change within himself as from immature to mature, or from one order of being to another. It should be clear that God can move in none of these directions. His perfections forever rule out any possibility of change. That's the God you serve. That's the God that you worship. He is the only being in the universe who does not and cannot change. And have you ever been disappointed at something being canceled have you ever planned on something, some store policy? You know, every time you, uh, well, I don't know if there. I'll give you an example. I'm pretty sure that Craftsman, that's the tool company of Sears, I'm pretty sure that their policy has been for years that if a craftsman tool breaks and you bring it to the store, they'll replace it. Now, I don't know whether or not that's still a policy, but that's what I'm talking about. Have you ever known a store to have a policy, and you just just bank on it? That's the way they've always done it. And you're just banking on it that when it happens and you go and they say, oh, we don't do that anymore. Oh, and you're disappointed and you're you, man, it ruins your plans and and now you got to rework. Uh, God will never do that to you. Cuz God does not change. And so, the immutability of God. Next, God is incomprehensible. Webster's 1829 dictionary, here's what it says. Cannot be comprehended or understood beyond the reach of human intellect. And then one more word, inconceivable. That's what, and it's what it says in the dictionary anyway. Anybody know what I'm referencing there besides my wife? Okay, all right. Um, here's some scripture for, for God is incomprehensible. Job eleven seven. 7. Now, I don't usually quote this guy because he's a punk, but he got it right on this one, all right? Zophar. One of Job's critics. Canst thou by searching find out God? Canst thou find out the Almighty unto perfection? And obviously the implication, it's a rhetorical question. He's saying, no, you can't. Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, the Lord says. Neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Matthew eleven verse twenty seven. All things are delivered. Jesus is talking. All things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knoweth the Son but the Father, neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. Romans chapter eleven verses thirty three and thirty four. O oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments! and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, or who hath been his counselor? Here's the, the explanation of what this means, they, that God is incomprehensible. The creator can never be completely understood by the created. The infinite cannot possibly be comprehended by the finite. <coughs> Listen to this. In order for anyone to comprehend God, that one, would have to be God. God cannot be comprehended by anyone who is not God. That, that ought to help us when we're trying to, well, I don't understand why God does. Okay. Nobody's ever going to understand God who's not God. God is beyond human comprehension. And the only knowledge that we can have of God is that which God chooses to impart to us. So instead of, by the way, sitting around and arguing about things that the Bible doesn't talk about, the Bible is full of knowledge that God wants us to have. And yet we sit around and argue about the craziest things. And God said, I didn't choose to tell you about that. I didn't choose to tell you where Cain got his wife. I didn't choose to to tell you about uh, the existence of, of Lucifer and so forth and how they lived and where they lived and what they did. I told you what I want you to know and what I know you need to know. By the way, what was it that caused Eve to step off the cliff? The desire to know. Now, boy, I know I could get in trouble with with folks that just worship education, and I'm not against education one bit. I am against us selling our souls to try to learn that which God never intended for us to know. When we worship knowledge, we have departed from God. We. We should hunger to know what God wants us to know. So, the only knowledge that we can have of God is that which God chooses to impart to us. Even that knowledge he gives to us, I'm sorry, even that knowledge, the knowledge that he imparts to us, he gives to us in terms that we can comprehend, because the smartest of us, the most brilliant human being can still not understand God in God's terms. Do you understand how much of the Bible God gives to us in, in terms that we can understand? Every once in a while, you'll find a phrase in the Bible where you go, um, I, I mean, why did God say it that way? That sounds like a human way to say it because... God's telling it to us in terms that we can can comprehend because a human mind could not possibly comprehend an infinite God. Now, this this may surprise you a little bit, but look, we're going to end this part with with, uh, this statement. When we have more complete knowledge in eternity, we will still not have full comprehension of the incomprehensible God. I mean, we have have this idea that we're going to get to heaven. We're going to have all the answers. We're going to have a lot of answers for sure. But don't think that all of a sudden you're going to be able to comprehend God because you're still going to be a created being. And God is still going to be the infinite creator. And even our minds with the blinds taken off in heaven we're still not going to be able to comprehend our incomprehensible God. Listen to what two different men have said about it. Harold Wilmington, no one can ever fully understand or comprehend God in regards to who he is and what he does except God himself. A.W. Tozer, I love this. God is exalted far above the created universe, so far above That human thought cannot imagine it. By the way, he goes on to say that I'm not talking about distance here. I'm not talking about how far away God is from the earth. He said I'm talking about in glory, in awesomeness. That's my word, but it's what he's getting at. In awesomeness, God is so far exalted above humanity and the earth that the human mind can't even imagine it. So there's a certain part of us, as much as we hunger and thirst to know God, there's a certain part of us that has to come to grips with the fact that he is the incomprehensible God. You've heard preachers say before, I wouldn't want a God that I could figure out. And that's the truth. What makes us think that we're going to figure God out? He's incomprehensible to anyone except God himself. So let's wrap it up here. Our motive for studying God and the Bible, doc- the Bible doctrine must always be a passion for God. Jeremiah 29, 13, you shall seek me and find me when you shall search for me with all your heart. Our study of God and Bible doctrine must always be accompanied by genuine love. 1 Corinthians 13, 2, though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I can remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. Our study of God and Bible doctrine should result in greater service for the Lord. Second Timothy 2 Timothy 2.15, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of the truth. Listen, if if studying theology puts you in a cave somewhere where you never communicate with people, you've, you've gotten off track. If studying theology makes you arrogant and condescending, well, you... you You couldn't possibly know that because you're not as educated in the things of God as I am. You've gotten off track. And I'd rather know God than know all the facts about God that you know but you don't know him. But you can do both. You can know about God and know God and it can be a wonderful combination that changes who you are and what you do for God. I believe it's very important. That's why we have set down this road. Let's take a moment. We stand together. The piano plays tonight. And just pray.